electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, Disney's big gamble. It's ESPN Bet launching tomorrow. Will sports gambling become its magic moneymaker? What a difference a she makes. San Francisco scrambling to clean up streets out of its Biden and China's president rolling into town. Booze, lewd pictures, strip clubs. No, it is not the wolf of Wall Street. It is the FDIC. The author of an explosive report is here. Soul. 1962 Ferrari. Look at that car. Just did something at auction that has never been done before. Speaking of cars, Tesla hitting the accelerator on plans to revolutionize supercharging in a very old school way. Plus, it is Make It Monday. So we're going to meet the co-founder of Caviar and how he is spurring food delivery industry's next innovations. All that and much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. We are going to get to all that and more throughout the hour. But first up on last call, it could be a make or break week for Wall Street and the year end rally. Investors just 12 hours away from the October Consumer Price Index, the CPI. And you care and we're leading with it because inflation data is likely the most important data point for the markets right now, even more so than the jobs number, because it helps determine what the Federal Reserve may do. Here is the expectation. It's for a rise of just above 3% year over year. If we get that, it would be the first month-to-month decline since June, although still above the Fed's 2% target. But we've come way down. The major indexes all now less than 5% off their highs of the year. It has been a good year for the markets, mainly because the big seven tech stocks just keep printing money. But still, if you own the macro market, maybe you don't care. So, If we get a softer inflation number, meaning inflation is coming down faster, maybe it could give your money a little extra mojo heading into the year end. Let's find out and get a full-on strategy session with us tonight, both on set, Fundstrat Global Advisors Managing Partner Tom Lee and Bear Traps Report Founder Larry McDonald. Larry making his first last call in-person appearance, and we appreciate it, Larry. Thank you. What are your expectations? Did I First off, Larry, welcome. Did I oversell? The importance of the CPI? No, it's, it's a great delivery. I mean, think about we're up 800 basis points since October 27th. That's one of the long. 8% non-fancy. 8%, 8%. That's probably one of the, I mean, you've got to go back a long time to find that kind of uh, performance into the inflation number. But most importantly, gasoline's down 12% since the summer. Um, rents are, have, have been sticky. But, but then you have got used car prices. So the bar, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, the bar is extremely high for a soft number. Well, I know a guy that may or may not have been calling for this rally, and he's sitting next to you, and his name is Tom Lee, not the drummer. Uh, Tom, here's the good news. I mean, here's what I worry about, and you were right. But if this number comes in even slightly off, are we doomed? 
because has this 8% rally already been the expectation of the softer number? Uh, Brian, you might be surprised, but I think institutional investors and retail have been fighting this rally. Um, you can see it in the put really? call ratio. Yes. The put call ratio today hit 1.26. That's an extremely elevated reading. It's been rising the last two weeks. And if you look since the October 27th rally, every time an intraday 1.2 is, or higher has been hit, we've rallied hard the next day. So I think into this print, if it's a little hot, I think people end up having to buy this dip because hedge funds have been shorting this rally. I know sentiment's negative. But I actually think the probabilities favor a slightly softer reading. The skew is for a hot reading. And I think we could get something that could feel like a face ripper like we had in July. So there's a possibility of, of quite a positive move tomorrow if it's a soft reading. So basically, markets are likely to go up if it's hot and markets are likely to go up a lot more if it's cold. That's right. I think it's and I mean cold coming in at like a 2.8. That's right. Uh, yeah, it, it's really going to be the core month over month. Let's say so. Point three is the consensus, and you know, Goldman's and the JPs are at point three six. I so think, you're looking at the month over month, not the year over year that I referenced. Yes, okay. but the year over year matters. The, on the core, it's still four two year over year. So something below four two would be considered a soft side. A face ripper, <laughs> possibly face ripper. Well, yeah. you know, Tom. Our clients at the Bear Traps, Bear Traps Report are all institutional investors, make 90% of our clients. And so we run a conversation every day on the institutional chat. And the conversation in the last three weeks has been like, okay, we got a massive CTA chase, you know, these commodity mm. futures trading accounts. They have to, they've been basically, to me, that face ripper argument has been going on for two, three weeks now because we came out of a, a better situation in the tragedy in Israel, softened in terms of the risk. The, 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 the short covering, the last 10, 15 days has been pretty face right I didn't even know you are going to bring that up, but we actually, I think, have a chart about the, the CTA's positioning, right? And because while they, they were so net short, they were so betting against yeah. the market, to your point, there it is, that far right side of your screen, this is according to Goldman Sachs and some other bar chart, uh, the far right is the covering but it looks, Larry, like there's still a lot more to go to get back to that neutral point about being net short. So to Tom's point, if it comes in, you know, soft, won't all those net short people still have to cover? Well, first of all, putting data like that together is extremely difficult because you're dealing with prime brokers. It's the bottom line, I don't really get in the weeds, but that data, it, it could be a you're little not, bit. You're not a believer. I'm not a believer. You're not a believer or a believer. All I know is I've heard for all, in, in, the, in the institutional conversation that I've had with some of the biggest buy side funds, they've been, they've been on top of this for two, three weeks now. And now I'm hearing on CNBC from Tom that it's like a new thing. So I, I just don't buy that. So you basically just threw gasoline on our chart and just <laughs> lit it on fire, which is good. No, it's good. We want that. Because people are looking at these types of things and making investment decisions. I think, I don't know who his clients are and how many he has, but we well, he's have sitting a, right now, you could ask him. He's yeah, right there. but, you know, we, uh, you know, our client base covers 82% of all long only and hedge fund asset managers. And I can tell you, I don't think any of our salespeople can remember anyone bullish. It's a pretty bearish tape out there. People are worried about a hard landing and People inflation being bearish stiff. for 20 years, Tom. That's exactly the point. Which is funny because everybody knocks CNBC. They're always like, you guys are always pumping the market. It's like everybody I know is bearish constantly. You know what That's I mean? That's right. I think And wrong. Correct. I think people forget that stocks 
tend to surprise us against what consensus is thinking. And I would say put call doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Prime brokerage positioning doesn't lie. The CTA chart shows the constellation of data shows people are still net short, not a believer in a seasonal year end rally. That's well, a non-consensus view. Larry, you tweeted slash X'd out this and it got me because th- I was curious. I actually don't know what it means. You can tell us. We are on the doorstep of the greatest migration of capital our world has ever seen tonight. We are in studio with the one and only Sully CNBC. Now, I agree with that last part. <laughs> okay, but what do you mean by the first part, greatest migration of capital? Okay, just one, just taking one anecdote. The power of labor. We've, the Atlanta Fed's wage tracker is still above 5%. We've got a much higher... <sighs> Just if rents in the United States, labor costs, we've got sticky inflation, okay, and everybody is in the last decade's darlings. This is one of the biggest, I mean, just one of the most crowded, tri- there's $18 trillion in the NASDAQ 100. America's 401ks have been hijacked by like 12 stocks. And I'm telling you right now, if, if inflation is sticky, which it's been over the last three years, people were talking about transitory inflation in 2021, that was a fallacy. I'm telling you, we're going to have at least out of the 18 trillion in the Nasdaq 100 between now and July. Uh, I think four to five trillion is going to matriculate and migrate out of that 18, out of those 12 big stocks and into the rest of the market. That's pretty cheap. But if they go from seven S and P 500 stocks to the 493, wouldn't that just would that have the same? It wouldn't have the same net effect on the S and P because the weightings, correct? That's right. I mean, Tom can tell you better than anybody. He knows the knows the flows. Thoughts on that thesis, there, Tom? Um, I mean, I think the biggest migration that's happening is the wealth transfer from boomers to millennials. That's $126 trillion over the next 20 years. If you look at asset allocation, someone in their 40s is, you know, much greater risk tolerance, much more likely to buy equities. I think you're going to see a huge rotation into equity as an asset class over the next 20 years. So I, I, I would say... My bet next year is that the flows come out of money market funds. The 12-month average flows into money market assets is gr- into, the, into this week is greater than 2009. I mean, that's a pretty cautious investor base that I think is going to allocate yeah. into equities. Final comment, Larry. In 1980, um, industrials, energy, and materials were 50% of the S&P 500, 5-0. Now we're talking like 12 to 14 we're going to have this migration is going to blow everybody away. How do we make money from that? Because you, sh- you should. So how be, do we? Because investors watching us right now should be getting out of the last decade's darlings, okay, the, the, the 12 to 15 biggest stocks, and get long industrials, materials, energy, oil, and gas. Real hard assets. I mean, I just say that was an expensive mistake to make to, to do that 10 years ago. That was Absolutely. 10 years ago. He's talking about the next 10, mm-hmm. I think. Well, next 10, I think fangs are going to be pretty important, actually. So, and I don't think you're talking about expensive. diamond. You, you he, and everybody else. He's though. talking about diamondback energy, Fang. You're talking about the, 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 the tech stocks. Guys, it's a great discussion. We could probably do it the whole hour, but then I'd be fired. <laughs> yeah. So please come back, and we'll have that. Okay? okay. Thank you very much. All right. Now to your Monday money, and here's how stocks started the week. It was a mixed day. The Dow up led by Boeing getting big orders from Emirates Airlines and Sun Express Turkey. The S&P and NASDAQ lower inside the S&P. It was actually two kind of studs of the day. We brought them both up because they're related. Davida and Insulet, both kind of diabetes plays. The big decliner, once again, Illumina. Ugh. It has now lost nearly half its value in 90 days. All right, we're just getting started here on Last Call and On Deck. They're all in. 
Disney's ESPN Bet Sportsbook launching tomorrow. Can the Magic Kingdom run the table against a very crowded field? And up next, going, going, gone. That gorgeous 1962 Ferrari right there just did something never done before at auction. Robert Frank will be here to tell you what that is next. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. It is time now for a special auto edition of tomorrow's noon tonight. Or new, new, tomorrow's noon tonight. Tomorrow's news tonight. First up, Jeep and Ram truck parent Stellantis preparing to offer another round of buyouts to half its corporate staff. That, according to the Wall Street Journal, is offering voluntary separation agreements to non-union employees with at least five years of experience. This is the second round of buyouts Stellantis has offered this year as it looks to cut costs. Next up, Fisker unplugged. The company just posted third quarter results and ouch, losses much wider than expected. Net loss for the quarter, $91 million. And Fisker says it delivered only 1,100 of its electric SUVs called the Ocean. Shares of Fisker, as you might imagine, plunging on that news down 14% after hours. But now to a totally different kind of car story. An ultra-rare Ferrari just sold at auction. You may not believe the price, but Robert Frank, who's been following the story from the beginning, joins us now, and we just learned how much it went for. And we did, Brian, just moments ago. RM Sotheby's announcing the sale of the most expensive Ferrari ever sold at auction. Sale price, get ready for it, $51.7 million, including fees. That's just below the estimated $60 million when it previewed at Pebble Beach. We first showed it to you back in August. But this beats the record of $48.4 million. That was for another GTO that auctioned in 2018. It is also the second most expensive car ever auctioned, right behind that Mercedes that went for $143 million last year. So what makes this Ferrari so valuable? Well, Ferrari only made 36 of them. The GTO considered one of the best race cars ever built. And you can drive it on the road. This particular car raced for Team Ferrari back in the early 60s, raced in lots of races. The seller is Jim Jager. He's the Ohio entrepreneur who actually, Brian, as you first pointed out to me, invented radar detectors because he wanted to drive his GTO fast. The car first sold in 1964 for $6,000. Jager bought it for $500,000 back in 85. So you look at that return, It's 10 times better than the S&P over the same period. And Brian, it's actually worth 
almost as much as its weight in gold. Based on today's spot price for gold, the car would be worth $56.7 million if it were made of gold or at least weighed in gold. So almost as much as a solid gold Ferrari. Still a good price, despite not quite getting that $60 million estimate. Well, that's first off, that is random and interesting, by the way, the solid gold Ferrari. So you can't drive a solid gold Ferrari, I would imagine. It's much less interesting. It's much less beautiful because to mine eye, just my own little eyes, that is one of the most beautiful cars ever built. But what's interesting about that car, too, Robert, is that it's not fancy. It was built as a race car. From what I understand, the interior, particularly the original car, was sold. It's very Spartan because, as anybody who races knows, it's all about weight. Yeah. No, you're right. And that's what's magical about this. The holy grail of classic cars, the GTO. I mean, Ralph Lauren, how a lot of billionaires, whether they might covet one or they have one. And the reason is because it is so gorgeous, like you say, it's timeless. I mean, you look at that car, 50 years from now, it'll still be gorgeous. And also because it was so successful as a race car. I mean, zero to 60 in about three seconds back in the 1960s. That's amazing. And it was street legal as well. So it was very Spartan on the interior, but it's still, look at that. It's still a gorgeous interior. Yeah. So that's what makes this car so special and will continue to be for years. And from what I understand, even if you had the money back in 1962, Enzo Ferrari himself had to approve you as a buyer. That's right. And, and very few came to the United States. A lot of the ones that we see come to auction, you know, they raced these mountain races in Europe for years because there weren't that many that uh, Louis Gennetti were able, was able to bring to the U.S. So they're just the rarest bird and the holy grail in autos. And by the way, the classic car sector as a whole, very weak right now. So Ferrari stands alone and the GTO, even among Ferraris, stands alone. So this is not indicative of a very strong classic car market. In fact, it's a weak classic car market right now. Well, not, not for Jim Jager, <laughs> who now just became yeah, generationally exactly. rich <laughs> off his car that he got to drive and made money. Robert Frank, great story, great follow, Robert. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Wow. All right, still ahead. Does the House of Mouse always win? Well, Disney and its ESPN bet are about to find out tomorrow. Plus, a very random, very interesting, almost really almost improbable mathematical fact about my Los Angeles Chargers that may blow your mind. What's next? Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, time now for your Monday RBI. Today it's about sports, specifically my beloved San Diego slash Los Angeles Chargers, because as much as I love my bolts... They have become spectacularly average. That is not a criticism or even just my opinion. It is actually a mathematical fact. Here's why. Okay, the Chargers became the first NFL team in decades to score a touchdown on the final five drives of their game and lose the game. They lost to the Detroit Lions 41-38. to And that score cemented something pretty amazing. Listen to this from CBS Sports and other sources. 
Since Justin Herbert became the Chargers quarterback, the team has scored 1,502 points. Unfortunately, the team's defense has given up 1,502 points, the exact same amount in Herbert's 59 career starts, including the playoffs, which probably also explains why in 58 regular season games over four plus years, the L.A. Chargers have a record of 29 and 29. So over 58 regular games, the Bolts have the exact same record, the same record offense, and the same defensive points scored and allowed at 1,502. That is definitely random. It's interesting, and it is. Despite their winning the uniform game every week, pretty spectacularly average. 1,502 on both sides. Wow. All right, why don't we stay with sports? Because if you wonder why we do our Friday Beat the Book segment, it is because sports and money are coming together in all kinds of new ways, including this. ESPN set to launch its much-anticipated sports book tomorrow. It is called ESPN Bet, and it will go live in those 17 states where sports gaming is legal. It is a big deal because it is the first time ESPN's brand will be on a sports betting platform. But ESPN Bet is entering a very crowded space that includes FanDuel, DraftKings, Caesars Sportsbook, MGM, and more. So how exactly can they make it stand out and win? Let's talk about it with sports business analyst Joe Pompliano. He's an investor at Pomp Investments and host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast. Also with us, senior research analyst at Needham & Company, who is a leader in all things media. That is Laura Martin joining us despite the fact that she is not feeling 100%, Laura. So we certainly do appreciate it. Laura, you say this is kind of a, a low-risk bet for Disney. How come? Because they um, got $2 billion from Penn. And so if it doesn't work out, they get to keep the $2 billion. But if it works out, it will bring in a lot more ratings, a lot more longer visual, and um, more. they can renew the deal after three years. And they'll get a big influx of cash. And, and Joe, I think Laura's point is basically like, listen, Disney's going to get a bunch of money. If it fails, not that big of a deal. They still get the equity. St- By the way, this is the old uh, Barstool sports book that Penn had that used to be a Portnoy and Penn. Now it's just Penn that they bought back, correct? Correct. Yeah, Brian, the way I've been describing this deal to a lot of people is that mm-hmm. it's a Hail Mary on both sides, really. You just mentioned Barstool. Penn had done a deal with them where they acquired 100% of the business for around $550 million. That didn't end up working out. They ended up selling it back to Dave Portnoy for $1. And then they go spend $2 billion, $1.5 billion in cash and $500 million in equity on the ESPN deal. And the reason why I think it's a Hail Mary is because Penn at the time told everyone that Barstool was a little bit too edgy content-wise for regulators. But the matter of fact was that they had they were live in 17 states at the time, and they had less than 5% market share in all 17 states. So they had to go try something else that wasn't working. And now they go try with a bigger player in ESPN. Yeah. You know, Laura, though, I can, I can see this in a way being genius for Disney and ESPN, because while FanDuel and DraftKings have to pay to advertise on ESPN on Saturdays and Sundays and whatever, Every just like every NFL or every ESPN host can just get up there for free and basically tout their new sports book. Well, they also did it under the ESPN name. DraftKings and FanDuel have not been willing to give up their names. So this, if it's successful, it looks like ESPN did it. And if it fails, no harm. They can just relicense to FanDuel next time. No downside. I do wonder, though, Joe, if there is there, there's not a financial downside, I think, to, to Laura's point. But I do wonder 
You know, I, obviously, I, I love sports gambling. We, we can't own stocks or do anything with equities. I've got to have a little fun somehow. But is there, you think, any risk to Disney's sort of family-friendly brand that they're now also just actively pushing sports gambling, which, let's be clear, can be fun, but most people are going to lose. That's why I'm doing this Friday segment, to see if somebody can actually win two years in a row. And people do get addicted to it. It's, it's, it can be very dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. One one part of that is the journalistic integrity standpoint, right? They've said there's a Chinese wall between the insiders and the journalists and the risk room at Penn. So we'll take their word for that. But the other part is that I think ESPN left a lot of meat on the bone here, right? If you think about what has happened over the last five years, in 2018, PASPA was repealed. PASPA was uh, allowed individual states to go legalize sports betting. That enabled companies like FanDuel and DraftKings and other people like that to spend billions of dollars on marketing and acquire millions of customers. ESPN sat back and waited because of that family-friendly image that they had with Disney. And now we're in 2023, and instead of building that enterprise value themselves, now they're going to get $150 million of cash per year, which essentially, you know, that's a lot of money, but it's 1% additional revenue for them on an annual basis. Yeah, but but to Laura's point, you know, and Laura, you can respond to this. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, if, the, if it, what's the worst case scenario? Let's say that DraftKings and, and FanDuel just have too much market share. This new Disney ESPN bet bombs. They don't, it doesn't cover the costs or whatever the problem may be. What, D- Disney writes it off and then what? They already own 5% of DraftKings. So they can always go back to DraftKings. So if this doesn't work out, FanDuel, I mean, no, Penn goes bankrupt and they go back to a DraftKings deal. Yeah. I wonder, Joe, you know, listen, sports gaming we know is, is massive, but still kind of it's only in 17 states. It'll probably never be legal in every state. There's still some states, I think two, that don't have a lottery, but there's still a lot of runway here. It's just amazing to me that people aren't making more profit off this because I guess the cost of getting, you know, the, the gambling bros, as I'll say, they'll switch any app if you offer them a $10 promotion. I mean, this is a, this is a cutthroat business. Yeah, we know that people are downloading two to three apps at a time, and they're basically going to whoever offers them the biggest promotion. But you're correct. Look, the one thing Penn has going for them right now is that it's really only active for about 50% of the U.S. population. So there's still a lot of land way to go here. And if it works with ESPN, that could be great. My argument to that would be that FanDuel and DraftKings own over 70% of the market today. You have other people coming in like Fanatics and Michael Rubin, who obviously have a ton of connections in the business too. BetMGM has done a good job. And then there's a bunch of smaller like DFS players uh, that are making headwinds in the space too. So it's going to be tough, but but as Laura mentioned, yeah. it's kind of a, lo- a win-win situation for Disney. You either get cash or the equity becomes worth more too. There you go. Joe Pompliano, Laura Martin, thank you both. It's a big deal for ESPN and for Disney. Laura, feel better. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. All right, still ahead, look who's getting a makeover. The race is on to sweep up the streets of San Francisco ahead of this week's Biden sit-down with China's president. But will the cleanup really last, and why did it take so long? Michael Schellenberg, next with that. All right, welcome back to Last Call. On Wednesday, President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping will finally meet again. It is the first time in a year the two leaders will speak in person. It is all part of the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, better known as APEC. It is happening in San Francisco. And because the world leaders are coming into town, San Francisco has suddenly decided to clean up the city. Contractors and maintenance crews not only sweeping streets and getting rid of trash and drug paraphernalia, but officials in law enforcement also removing people, many homeless reportedly being moved out of the areas where they might be seen. 
It is particularly true in some areas that we walked through just a few weekends ago. And some may applaud the move to finally try to make the city a little bit cleaner and safer. But others are asking, why is it taking a visit from the president and the head of China to take action? Let's talk about that and more with the president and co-founder of Environmental Progress, Michael Schellenberger, also the author of a book called San Francisco. It is a book well worth your read about the decline of the city, but also maybe how the city can come back as well. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. I'm torn. I'm torn on how I was just there a few weeks ago. I walked through the Tenderloin. I walked through the Mission. I walked around the entire city. I saw some stuff that was really disturbing. So on one hand, you need to get people help and we need to clean it up. On the other hand, it's hard not to be cynical and be like, oh, wow, look, the president's coming to town. Let's try to pretend that none of this is there. Well, that's right. I mean, they were really stuck between two situations of bad optics. On the one hand, you have all these world leaders, including China's head of state, coming to San Francisco and seeing the human devastation, the loss of dignity on the street. On the other hand, you they clear the streets, move the homeless really to other parts of the city and show that really is something they could have done all along. And they obviously chose the latter. The governor, Gavin Newsom, came out this morning and acknowledged that that's true that they did that. It raises questions around whether it can stick. Obviously, for most of us, we're very cynical that it will stick. You saw the Babylon Bee with, I thought, a really funny headline that just said, Governor Gavin Newsom promises the homeless will return, you know, as soon as his boss leaves town. Um, So, you know, there is a sense in which, of course, we can do this. I think the thing that really is missing from the conversation right now is just that there's a certain certain segment of drug addicts and mentally ill who have to be mandated care It's just something that we're really uncomfortable with. We love our freedom. But if you're so degraded by mental illness or addiction that you're living on the street, defecating on the street, using drugs on the street, Uh breaking the laws, you need to be given the choice of being arrested or accepting rehabilitation. Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to give Governor Newsom credit for saying it. I mean, he he came out and said it. He's like, did we clean up the city because these world leaders are coming in? We absolutely did. And then he talked about other reasons as well. But he he didn't try to back off it. He kind of went said that's that's the reality. But I think what ticked me off, and we don't we all want people to get the help they need. To your point, and we want the city to be a safe, clean, and livable place. It's one of the most special cities in the world. I talk about it because I love it so much, Michael. But it's hard not to be cynical if you've been a resident there since COVID or during COVID, and you can't get anything done. There's retail crime everywhere. The stuff I saw on the street was just terrifying in many cases. Not right downtown, but otherwise. And now we got this and suddenly everything's fine. It's hard not to be a little bit cynical. Oh, yeah. And you got to remember, I mean, one of the worst things that we, we saw recently, a mentally ill woman on the streets who had been using methamphetamine fentanyl, her, the bottom halves of her legs rotted. They took her to the hospital. They amputated her legs. They put her right back on the streets. So, you know, progressives have a blind spot, which is that they don't understand that compassion in excess, not balanced by uh, other, you know, other values can have a really dark side. It can lead to its opposite, which is cruelty. And that's what we're dealing with here is just you've got a very entrenched bureaucracy, you got interest groups that have been insisting that we enable these forms of self-destruction and city destruction. I do hope it's a wake up call. I think it's a reminder that we're not doomed to this reality and that we can Uh, fix these problems. We need a longer term solution, though. And I'd be very curious to see before and after pictures that I mean right now versus three weeks from now on certain streets and corners urge people that are out there to like, let's see 
if they just allow it to go back to the way it was, which would be the greatest tragedy of all. Michael Schellenberger, thank you for your insight. Appreciate that. Good to be with you. All right. Well, now to a much lighter note. It is time for our quicker than the ticker, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. The Marvel's sequel, not so marvelous. The new movie cost $300 million and brought in less than $50 million at the box office this weekend. That is the lowest figure ever for a Marvel release. Nepal banning TikTok. The government says it disrupts, quote, social harmony in the country. It is still not clear what triggered the ban. The FAA and AAA putting out Thanksgiving travel predictions. The day before the holiday, we'll see more than 49,000 commercial flights take to the skies, and more than 55 million Americans are expected to travel. Diners, drive-ins, and Tesla chargers? The EV maker is building a 1950s-style diner and drive-in movie theater with a supercharger station in Los Angeles. It will reportedly have 32 charging stalls. A new look at the cosmos. The European Space Agency's Euclid Telescope just revealed never-before-seen images of the universe. Look at that beautiful photo of the Horsehead Nebula. It is 1,375 light-years away. Oh, over already. That is just so cool. Wow. All right, coming up. The Wolf of Wall Street apparently has nothing on the FDIC, a new investigation revealing a shockingly toxic culture at the bank regulator, and its author joins us next. All right, welcome back. A shocking expose is out on the FDIC. Yes, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the agency that regulates and audits banks. The eye-opening report comes from the Wall Street Journal. The investigation is titled Strip Clubs, Lewd Photos, and a Boozy Hotel, The Toxic Atmosphere at Bank Regulator FDIC. It is filled with wild, jaw-dropping allegations. The journal spoke with more than 100 current and former employees who say the FDIC had a heavy drinking culture and that female employees faced rampant sexual harassment, driving many women to leave the agency. The general reporter behind the investigation, Rebecca Ballhouse, joining us now. Rebecca, thanks very much for joining us here on Last Call. Um, I'm going to, it's a family show. I'm going to read an excerpt from your amazing piece here. So I apologize to the viewers for the rather direct language. The FDIC's 11-story hotel outside D.C., where out-of-town employees would stay when attending training, was a party hub where people have vomited in the elevator and peed urinated off the roof after nights of heavy drinking. The carousing even spawned an Instagram account that posted two years ago, quote, if you have not puked off the roof, were you ever really an FIS referring to a bank examiner in training? Wow. First question, why does the FDIC have its own hotel? That's a great question. It was a surprise to me when I first started reporting on this. But what happened in the 1980s, the FDIC built a training complex. And uh, part of that complex was a hotel. And the reason it gave at the time was that its uh, its examiners come to D.C. quite frequently for training. And they felt it would save them money if they could put them up at an FDIC hotel rather than having to pay for a hotel every time. But I think one of the things that stood out about having a hotel is that you can predict what might happen when you put a bunch of examiners, particularly a bunch of recent college grads, all in a hotel together and you give them per diem. And so I think sort of we see what what the fallout of that has been. Well, clearly many of these, in fact, some of the people that you highlighted in your piece were very young, some of them right out of college. 
Generally, though, their bosses were not. I mean, they tended to be older and, and largely, it sounds like they tended to be male as well. So it really sounds like kind of a toxic setup from the very beginning. Yeah, that's what a number of women and men, but but largely women, described to me as they they joined the FDIC right out of college. You're often sent out on the road right away to begin bank exams, and because examiners are predominantly male, right now the split is sixty forty, um, and, and more so for in the supervisor ranks. You're often sent out on these teams that are mostly or all male, and that can just lead to some difficult dynamics. And I think a number of the women I spoke to either felt they had been harassed or exposed to a sexualized environment that ultimately, in some cases, led them to leave the organization. Yeah, and you note here when people did complain, the FDIC in multiple instances investigated and substantiated complaints, but moved the perpetrators to other offices instead of firing them, which for federal employees can be a difficult process. Again, I'm reading you back to you for the viewer so it sounds like because they're difficult to fire, a lot of these people that did some bad things were just allowed to hang on just somewhere else. Yeah, we certainly found multiple instances in which people, employees complained about someone's conduct. The agency investigated, substantiated it, and simply either demoted and moved someone or just moved somebody to another office. And I think what was really frustrating for the employees that complained is they felt that there was never any recognition that the issues they had raised were justified and that they were exposed to an inappropriate environment and that there was also no precedent set for people not to break the rules or act inappropriately going forward because they saw that there were fairly few consequences for doing so. Yeah, you know, and you talked about the idea that it's cheaper to have their own hotel, that maybe they would, quote, save money by doing it. But then later on in the piece, it seems like the FDIC maybe just talking about straight hotel costs. But you note that it's about $400,000 to train an examiner over four years and that fewer than half of the examiners hired in the last six years remain at the agency. So if the, if the retraining cost is $400,000 per person, it doesn't sound like having a hotel saves them any money. Well, I don't know that you can link those two things so directly, but I think we certainly saw that, that the agency is having some staffing challenges. They're struggling to keep examiners in training, and it's costing them money. And based on my interviews, it seems like the toxic work environment and problems with the culture is part of what is causing some examiners to leave. Yeah, just a uh, remarkable piece. And by the way, not one I thought that I would ever read about the FDIC and boozy hotels in the same opening paragraph. Rebecca Ballhouse, great piece. Urge everybody to read it. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Well, we did reach out, of course, to the FDIC for comment. Here's what they told us. Quote, harassment in any form is contrary to the FDIC's values and our deep commitment to fostering a diverse and inclusive workplace. We have various training, reporting and oversight programs that endeavor to create a safe and equitable environment. When we identify misconduct, we investigate and we take appropriate action. All right, coming up, we're going to go just a tad lighter because it is Make It Mondays, or maybe this week it's Made It Mondays, because today we're going to meet Caviar's co-founder on the next big thing coming in food tech. Stick around. All 
All right, it is Make It Mondays, and this week's version is a little different. We're going to try to call it maybe Remake It Mondays, because tonight you're going to meet somebody who has already made it and is trying to help others do the same. It is Sean Sout, one of the founders of the food delivery platform Caviar. Let's take a look at how he and his college friends made it. A lot of the best companies solve the simplest of problems. For us, it was, give me a sandwich. I'm Sean Sal. I'm 34, and I co-founded a food delivery app called Caviar. We're here at UC Berkeley, where it all started. One of the first meetings that we had as a company was here in this fraternity house. I was rushing this fraternity called Pi Alpha Phi at UC Berkeley. We were wide-eyed students looking to change the world. We were figuring out all sorts of different uh, startup companies. There's already the idea of independent contractors because of Uber and Lyft. So we adopted that idea for food delivery. I think what separated Caviar from the rest of the pack was that we had amazing restaurants that were cult favorites in the community. The idea we had for the name was it needs to be something that can be sold to the restaurants that we're selling to. And so we were thinking about premium food, what's like, what's very luxe. We had these partnerships with these amazing restaurants and they would blast us to their tens of thousands of people who follow them. We just blew up. It was really hard for me to even think about us getting acquired. We were already getting inquiries from other companies for possible partnerships. Uh, one of them was Square. Their Square BizDev person called us and he said, okay, we have an offer for you. And he gave us this nine-figure offer. You know, after some discussion over the phone, we all said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's see where this takes us. So many people told us we were gonna fail. And these came from well-known investors, well-known founders, entrepreneurs. I am really passionate about food still, and so I'm continuing to expand all my restaurant brands. And honestly, I'm always happy just advising startups, investing in them, and hoping to get in the right direction. And Sean Sao joining us now live. Sean, congratulations to you and your team and your friends and your success at Caviar. So you've, you've made it. So can, do you have an inspirational message to most of our CNBC Make It crew who are trying to make it? Well, uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I guess the first advice I would give anyone is um, if you're trying to be an entrepreneur, solve something that you're passionate about because you're going to go through a lot of ups and downs. And when it's really hard, it's hard to stay motivated unless it's a problem that you're truly passionate about, that you truly want to solve. And only with that, only with that passion can you push through all the tough times that, that comes at you when you're building a company. But you wanted to be an architect. You love Frank Gehry. So how did you go from yeah. architecture to, hey, let's be the, quote, Uber of food? Well, at the time, yeah, like you said, I was going to be in an architecture firm and my buddy Jason and Tony, they convinced me that, hey, uh, we need someone to help with our design, our marketing and also our sales. So anyway, you can take some time off of your architecture career to help us out. And at the time, I was like, you know what? I can pause this for a year. I'm in Silicon Valley. This is an opportunity of a lifetime to build a company. And so I was like, why not? Let's just do it for a year. Let's see what happens. And uh, it evolved into caviar. Well, now the Uber of food is actually Uber because they have Uber Eats <laughs> yeah. and, and there's DoorDash and others 
Uh, it got to be really crowded. So my guess is you guys, what they call exited at the right time. What's what's next for food and technology? What is what are you working on? What would you back right now? Well, right now I'm working on uh, building out my restaurant portfolio. I have restaurants in uh, all over San Francisco, Seattle, uh, down in LA. And so a lot of the problems I see at the restaurants is being more efficient. And as you may know, in California, minimum wage goes up a lot every year. It's uh, almost up to $20 minimum wage. And so at the restaurant level, we're trying to find ways to be more efficient in terms of building our products or uh, using software to find uh, anywhere that money is leaking, find plugging all those holes and being a very profitable venture. And so a lot of tech nowadays that I'm looking for is helping out restaurants to improve their operations, improve their finances, and but still continue to provide good service to the customers. And I assume it's pretty cool to be rich. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's honestly, it's, uh, it's, it's surreal. Yeah. And congrats. By the way, you took a huge chance. You guys had like 10 bucks in the bank at one point and you made it. And God bless you. Sean Sal, it's an amazing story. Look forward to seeing what comes next. Appreciate it, Sean. Yeah, appreciate being here. All right. Well, to hear more about stories about making it, you can go to CNBCMakeIt.com. And Sean and his team, they, they did it. They were the American dream. All right. Do you know what happened 83 years ago today? One of Disney's most iconic movies hit the big screen. I mean, who can forget that broom scene from Fantasia and other iconic scenes? Now, adjusted for inflation, Fantasia has made more than $759 million at the box office, making it the 24th highest grossing film ever. But it was a flop at first, and it actually almost bankrupted Disney. Kind of a lesson in sticking with it, like Sean and his team. Folks, thanks for sticking with us through the hour. We're going to see you tomorrow night. Take care. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.